Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast, episode number 126. Welcome to the show. It amazes me you remember every week, exact number. I have to go and check. That's <laughs> the truth of it. Hello, my name's Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, along with our cat, who is purring away nicely. <laughs> I like how the purring intensity increased because you put something that she wanted to smell in front of her face. <laughs> yeah, indeed. UK independent publishers are the following four genres. Crime. Mysteries. Suspense. And thrillers. And Aki uh, hopefully won't make too many interruptions in the show. She's sitting in the sofa between us as we record the podcast. And our guest this week is Heather Fitt. Yes, someone we've been meaning to have on the show for a while. And yep. so it was absolutely lovely to finally talk to Heather. Heather is a uh, crime author with uh, Bloodhound, and she also works for them in an editorial capacity yeah, as well. Yeah, so it's it's quite nice talking to someone who has their toes in two different, you know, from the author perspective and an editor perspective, because yeah. I think that makes interesting um, look on the industry. Absolutely. So we'll talk to Heather a little later. Let's get into the news this week. Uh, plenty to go at, actually. And I'm going to start with a story which um, reflects, I think, the, the, the changing trends in live events around books. Yeah. And it's a story in the bookseller, which uh, is dated the, June the 16th. And it says, uh, book festival organizers are reporting difficulties when it comes to booking big names for their events. Well, Why Har- is that then? Well... Harrogate aren't struggling, are they? Because no, <laughs> they've got, I, got a rock I, out of the big names. That's what I thought. So what do they mean by that? Well, what they mean is that literary festivals are beginning to flourish again post-COVID, organisers revealed to the bookseller. But it's harder to attract famous authors as theatre-style tours boom in popularity. Now, what that means, essentially, mm. is authors going around the country booking the theatres or at least their publishers or whoever it is, the live event organisers, booking theatres and taking all the revenue. So you would support your book. They do this in America a lot, actually, mm. where uh, author tours are a big thing. So, for instance, if you're a nonfiction writer of history, Andrew Roberts or someone like that, or Anthony Beaver, they will go around and they will sell out quite decent-sized venues, you know, over a 1,000-seat venues for an evening with, and it'll be a mixture of, uh, you know, an interview with someone chairing, yeah. The the evening, possibly some uh, film material that they've put together, and then a Q and A, and then a book signing. I suppose not dissimilar to the session we saw Robert Dawes do in Tubbage Wells, although that was part of a festival, but that sort of format. Mm. Yeah, I see. So there's a concern about the increased use of book and ticket bundling 
preferred by many publishers to push sales, which can push ticket prices up beyond an accessible level for many visitors. Now, in in fairness, we actually went to something like this, uh, was it a couple of years ago now, Manchester Literary Festival? Yes, it was, yeah. Kate Atkinson was speaking at the Royal Exchange Theatre, which is, uh, from memory, about an 800-seat venue yeah it was a lovely in, venue in the round yeah it's it's one of those famous um 60s theaters that that sort of uh, it was very fashionable to have a, a theater stage right in the middle and everything in the round uh but there there was the option well you basically had to buy the ticket and you got the book yeah and then you had a choice whether you wanted to queue up to get it signed uh but the book was obliged and i've also been to another one with alan cumming the uh scottish actor and comedian who was very very good and uh, again that was at the manchester literary festival a few a couple of years before that and again the book came with the ticket so it's a guaranteed book sale for them yeah that's quite interesting because that, that makes it attractive in a way if it's a brand new book and you haven't got it yet somehow that makes it attractive. well uh, you've got you, something tangible well here's the difference then so if you go to crime fest and you're you're an author on a panel uh one of the four authors on the panel for instance then at the end, when everyone trapes out afterwards, you've got to have done enough of a job or taken the opportunity to persuade people that they want to buy your book. But actually, we've been to a number of festivals where authors just sit there in a line and maybe <laughs> the superstar author will get a couple of signings, a couple of books signed maybe, maybe yeah. half a dozen if, at most. And some of some authors don't get any at all. But do you think that's possibly because the book's already out there and most no, of the fans have already got a copy. Well, there is an element of that. But I think that, you know, what publishers would, would prefer if they're going to put their, put, get their authors to an event is to guarantee that they're going to get 500 book sales. It makes no, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it is, yeah. So that's what I mean. That's the difference, isn't it? That well, that, uh, you, you wouldn't buy the book. If, if you saw your favourite author was doing an um, onstage event and you got the book with a ticket, you would you wouldn't buy it because you wouldn't mm. need to. Well, look, I mean, okay, so just to, to back up the earlier point about festivals becoming, you know, picking up after COVID, Cambridge Literary Festival saw a footfall rise of 66%. Hayes Festival went up, uh, the Hay Festival went up by 37%. The Stratford Literary Festival sold 85% more tickets and Bradford Literary Fest organisers described a significant increase in sales against not only 2022, but also 2019. And London's Stokey Lit Fest sold out of weekend tickets within two hours. However, it's the rise of theatre star tours for authors promoted by companies such as Fane Productions, Live Nation and AEG Presents that means there is concern about pulling in the most famous authors. Now, Fane do 300 live events a year with a mixture of both high profile and up and coming names. And there's a free online programme which comprises over 100 online events every year. And it's positioned as the partner of choice for publishers, authors and podcasters in the UK and internationally. But could you argue, though, that this gives more opportunities for um, perhaps a sort of the, what you call the mid-list authors? I hate that phrase. You know, the, the not quite as famous as really famous authors to, and the ones below that as well, new in their career or whatever, getting into festivals. Uh, yes, if festival organisers are uh, open to that possibility yeah and you know we know that festivals aren't all made equal in that regard no that's true i mean harrogate is uh, to to a degree a lockout for the same names every year 
um, with one or two exceptions. And yes, they've woken up to their diversity problem, which raised its head uh, a couple of years ago, couple of years it, ago yeah. where they had nobody of colour on any panels, or at least nobody uh, um, from a black background until they made last minute changes to, to adjust they that. They did, yeah. And they're a bit better at that now. But there certainly isn't anybody from the indie circuit getting in on the Harrogate. No. Right? No, it's, it's a lockout for the big pub publishers and their imprints. So that that's a concern. Crimefest, of course, is much more egalitarian. They try and get everybody... Every author who registers and pays the ticket to, to go for the weekend, they try to get them on a panel. They do. They, they don't always succeed, but they, it's much more egalitarian. Oh, completely, yes. They're very good at that. Not the, Actually, you know, if you're on one of those panels, even if it's 40, 45 minutes long, you're not necessarily going to get a lot of time to make an impression because it's going to be spread around the panel and you might get to say four or five things if you're lucky. Yeah, but it's still, it's something, isn't it's it? It's better than nothing, yeah. absolutely. Uh, you would say capital crime in London has uh, certainly, you know, last year had a lot of independent authors on, on that list um, and from smaller publishers too. And Bloody Scotland um, give an opportunity for someone to go ahead of the big names and have five minutes window in which to sell their book yeah it's a good thing so, that. which is a good thing i mean it's, it's a little thing but it's a good thing but um i think that when we're talking about the really big names and i don't think this really applies to our section in crime actually i think possibly the american authors might come over and do a theater tour but it tends to be i think bigger names in the literary world literary fiction mm. and i think it's also the non-fiction people and i think it's the comedians and the celebrities who write books absolutely because they're used to that forum anyway so they yeah. sort of naturally slot into that i went to one which was organized by aeg live which was uh, jack whitehall had a book out for christmas about how to survive your family and of course it was dad and his mum who star in many tv shows yeah. with jack uh, on stage at the manchester apollo and um that was you know a sellout but well, how much of that was focused on the book? And well, it was all about the book. It was all about the book. So it was, uh, it was an opportunity. We, you know, we were expected at the end to go and spend twenty quid on the on the hardback. All oh, right. So it didn't come as a ticket, but a lot I of people don't think so. No, no, I don't think we got. We, Did you buy it? No, we didn't. <laughs> it didn't quite work <laughs> from that point of view. We thought, but it was quite short. I mean, we they were only on stage for about ninety minutes, split into two halves. It's not much. 90 minutes, okay. And so we paid, and this is, I took my son, and I think we paid 25 to 30 quid each for those tickets. And essentially, it's a book promo. You're paying 30 quid for a book promo with a bit of humour thrown in. Mm. Um, it's it's odd. It, I mean, you know, that, but that isn't the nature. If, if live events companies can get people in that are going to draw ticket sales, they'll do it. But and it's a very cheap production. Well, what's interesting, though, is 20 to 30 quid sounds cheap for going to a theatre to see something. But if you went to a festival and went to a panel, I don't know how much individual panels would be valued well, at. It, but... dep it depends, isn't it? I mean, you know, actually, when you look at Bloody Scotland, they do sell tickets for individual they events do, yeah. as opposed to having a weekend ticket. Um, and actually, you know, they range between £5 and £15 for, a, for an event featuring Stephen King, for instance, which, okay, it was on a live link, but that was the COVID oh, period. So so essentially it's, it's more expensive than um, a festival appearance, but it feels cheap for a night out or an afternoon Yeah, but out. it's a lot for one author to carry, um, or even a couple of authors. It, it's, it's, it's almost getting into that thing of 
around sport, for instance, there are often these tours that do the theatres mm. around the UK, particularly cricket. So, for instance, the BBC cricket correspondent Jonathan Agnew and Jeff Boycott go off and do 50 dates where it's a bit of banter, it's a bit of sort of historic stuff. They play some archive stuff and then they take questions from the audience and they charge 30 quid a head for 90 minutes appearance and maybe a signing at the end because they've both got books out. Yeah. And they make a killing on that circuit because it's so cheap to make. The, the staging is lighting, a couple of microphones. And higher the building. Maybe a couple of pull-ups at the background and, 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 and possibly a cheap video screen that projects some stuff. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not expensive, but you can make a lot of money from yeah. it. And I think that's where's, where the book thing is going too, almost certainly. Interesting. Okay, we'll watch that with them. Okay, our next story. Let's let's move on to our next story. Okay, so this is something that caught my eye because uh, we we talk about every now and then about um, cancel culture, but also um, book banning or people getting irate about content in books and stuff like that. And America is <laughs> swinging this way, or has been more recently. Oh yeah, big time. Um, there was one particular book called um, Het Mouse or something like that. I can't remember actually. It's a graphic novel um, oh this is about uh telling the nazi sort of p- parable wasn't it really? yeah so it, it about was a hitler lo- looking like mouse wasn't it no, no 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 so it was written by the son of someone who'd been in the concentration con- okay con- <laughs> Concent- concentration camp yeah and but it was a graphic novel and everybody was a mouse so it was right sort of fictionalizing his family's story um with my, mice characters dressed in mm-hmm, clothes. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant, but it was banned in a um, particular state. And as soon as that happened, I went out and bought a copy and so did uh, Middleson. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I don't even understand why it was banned. But so basically what they're saying in, in the White House now, they've actually appointed a new role. So this is a, um, a coordinating role in the Department of Education, which uh, has been tasked to respond to book bans and to act as a sort of a balance to these things, you know. Yeah, so individual states and um, presumably uh, the State Committee for Education will be banning stuff that they perhaps feel religiously or uh, in terms of it might be LGBT. A lot of it is that, yeah. Plus stuff um, which they feel is offensive and therefore they're trying to protect, the, you know, in their view – the pupils from um, from aspects of this, or indeed getting books banned, you know, similar, I suppose, to the campaigning around abortion and all that sort of thing that that, that is particularly in conservative states. Absolutely, right. So that's an interesting thing, and because that's quite, you know, in an election as the election campaign starts to pick up now in America, mm. uh, it's it's a bold move in the in a way. Um, I suppose this is Joe Biden uh, expressing, you know, that he's going to use this as one of the the, the sort of uh, points of, of of debate in that presidential election against whoever, we're assuming he gets the nomination um, for the Democrats, but presumably, you know, Donald Trump or whoever gets in for the for the um, Republicans, this will be, a, a, again, a point of debate and an argument. Yeah, so the White House, they put out a statement saying, book banning erodes our democracy, removes vital resources for student learning and con- can contribute to the stigma and isolation that LGBTQI plus people and other communities face. Mm. So, yes, I, I think you're right, though. I think it's a sort of a pre-election, um, look how democratic we are and all-inclusive yeah. and, and 
But it's, it's, it's interesting because it is going to cause debate. Of course it will. Absolutely. Well, look, um, there, there are further political moves in the UK as well. Um, it's been a week of dominated by, not Philip Schofield this week, but uh, by <laughs> Boris Johnson, obviously, uh, who is set to, as we put this podcast together, it'll go out on the Monday. So at some point, the par- Parliament are expected to vote on whether he is going to be banned from the from Parliament for 90 days. It's immaterial anyway because he's resigned his seat. Uh, he's no longer an MP. But that was the, the big debate. But uh, at the same time, the British government, led by Rishi Sunak, the Conservative government, is trying to uh, get past that roadblock and the, the headlines and do some things, policy things, which includes a, a rather vague announcement that uh, the government is planning to boost the creative sector by £50 billion by 2030 here in the UK. Uh, (laughs) It sounds amazing, doesn't it? When I read that headline, I thought, wow, that's fantastic. Well, yeah, that does sound fantastic. And the the Publishers Association has welcomed the government's plans. Uh, The plans are set up by the government will support a million more jobs by that year, 2030, with £77 million worth of new funding for the sector announced. Now, that's not very much. No. And uh, Rishi Sunak, in his statement, picks out the uh, true British success story of our creative industries, which include (laughs) global music stars such as Adele and Ed Sheeran. Oh, be still my beating heart. Uh, To world-class cultural institutions such as the National Theatre. Well, yeah, I mean, the RSC, the National Theatre, Royal Opera, I mean, there are world-class organisations, but they have faced enormous financial pressures, uh, certainly since the pandemic. And it's, you know, it's all very well saying this, but I'm just very conscious of about two months ago, just up the road from where we are, about say just up the road, about 80 miles away, in Oldham, their, <laughs> their theatre got, got closed down because there's no, no arts council funding for that theatre yeah. anymore oh, and there's an all manner of, uh, of similar stories across the UK where theatres that have been going for generations have been closed down because there is no money in the in the pot and actually they're the ones that need the help because they serve absolutely. the communities the smaller communities you who know, don't have opportunities the, to go to London to absolutely and the National Theatre will survive for fine thank you very much no, yeah. not a problem you know it might just have to go dark for a couple of months a year but it you know it isn't necessarily going to be you know existential like it is so what does this mean um this is a new thing called sector vision commits the government to a new creative careers promise a pledge backed by a package of actions to open up more opportunities especially for young people to pursue careers in the creative industries okay fine but let's also point out that we've talked about this on the show i'm getting getting on my hobby horse a bit how many creative um, and arts subjects are being cancelled in university at the moment. And, well, swept and away. schools as well. So um, my boys' is, um, school, this is the last year they're doing A-levels. Well, next year is the last year they're doing A-level art. Yeah. And music, I think, as well. So, <sighs> yeah. Well, uh, Stephen Page, chair of Faber and Faber, said the golden thread of education and skills pathway that support careers for all in the creative industries is vital to their continued success. I welcome the sector vision's commitment to building the future workforce our industry needs. I, it just sounds... Look, with the greatest respect, it doesn't seem likely, and I'm not, going, I'm not a soothsayer in any way, but at the moment, the direction of travel is that the current Conservative government will not be in power in 2030. One would argue, <laughs> potentially. Well, they might get back in by then, but we've got an election next year, 2024, at the latest. 
and uh, things aren't uh, looking that way at the moment. But I just think that's a bit woolly. Yes. And um, 77 million quid doesn't go very far. No, not at all. Doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, right. Sorry, that- to, sorry <laughs> to be cynical, uh, but we are feeling rather cynical. Oh, anything to do with the current government, we are cynical. Yeah. Well, at least, uh, you know, we, we know that uh, Boris now has the time to go and write the memoir that he's currently writing. Or a crime novel. Mm, that's just, that's the report that we've been reading from, <laughs> from the Parliamentary um, Privileges Committee. Okay, let's get to our interview with Heather Fitt. And Heather is someone we've um, been on nodding terms with uh, around the country at various festivals. Uh, she had a previous career uh, in the car industry, in fact, um, car selling industry. But uh, eventually she decided to follow her passion and move into the literary world. So she took a number of courses in terms of editing. And now she's a published author with three novels to her name through Bloodhound Books. And uh, it was a real great pleasure to speak to Heather from her home in Hampshire. Heather Fitt, thanks so much for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm loving being here. It's such a pleasure. But um, I've been a fan of your work for a long time and been meaning to grab you at one of these um, festivals <laughs> that we all go to uh and say hi but yeah. here we are virtually hello. doing it so hello yeah we hello. were saying earlier that you're one of those people that we feel like we know even though we've never really spoken to each other because you you appear quite a lot you're quite active on social media and oh that's very sweet yeah I yeah that's um some people say that's a good thing my uh my editor might not be quite so convinced actually <laughs> Well, it's all no, part. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I think it's a really important part of the the package nowadays, isn't it? I, you know, there's no there's no question that if you're not on social media, you, you're missing out on book sales. So that's that's for sure. Uh, but it's yeah, I, I think but it's so. a difficult balance to strike, isn't it? It is a difficult balance to strike. I mean, I was quite lucky in that I already had quite a big following before I started writing. So I kind of just latched onto that anyway. Um, But yeah, I do think more and more now people, authors are expected to be um, at least social media savvy, if not on there all the time. Um, I do try and limit it. um, First thing in the morning, last thing at night, that kind of thing. But it's not always easy. And if you can get involved in a conversation with anybody, really, but readers especially, you're not just going to put that down and go away and, and write for an hour and then come back to it. You're going to want to keep getting involved, aren't you? Mm. And readers like it, though, because they like to see that you're a real person and that you do other things as well as writing. But also they like it when you talk about your writing, your progress and your process and all those sort of things. They want to know that, you know, you are a real person. Yeah, that's very true. That is very true. Um, and, you know, I try and talk about a little bit about everything. So um, I work in publishing as well as write. Um, and I've always been an avid reader since I was, well, old enough to read. My mum tells the story of the first day I ever went to school. Um, I came home and told her I wasn't going back because I couldn't read yet. <laughs> I that. Yeah, so it's almost like a frustration that there were books, because presumably there were books at school, and the fact that you couldn't read them. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I used to drag mum and dad to the library all the time. Um, I'll never forget the day I found out I could take out 12 books. <laughs> I was very excited. <laughs> but yeah, I've read for my whole life, hence hence the shelves behind me in my collection, which is, that's only a small part of it. There's quite a bit more around <laughs> that you can't see, but yeah. yeah. So I, I do think it's important that you that that readers get to know the whole person and not just the writer. Absolutely. And um, you talk about working in publishing. So, but uh, before that, 
I mean, you you were in a um, more traditional job, I suppose. You made a you made a definitive career decision to get into publishing. That is very true. Yes, um, I worked in the motor trade for fourteen years. Um, I remember applying for this job as an admin assistant, um, and then before I knew it, I'd been promoted two or three times, and all of a sudden, I was. Um, an assistant manager and then I became a manager so I was actually a manager of an after sales department so the guys who fix your cars uh, for about seven years in total I think it was uh, before I decided to leave. I don't That's very different it. from books. <laughs> yeah I call it my very well-paid career job um, <laughs> um, but in the end the the stress levels um, and all that sort of thing it was just too much I didn't enjoy it hated it my mental health was all over the place um and when I saw this opportunity to read books for a living I literally grabbed at it with both hands <laughs> and didn't I don't blame you well that, that, that's fantastic I mean very male-dominated environment I guess does that yeah. uh, and I get the sense certainly in your first book that's a, that's a big feature of it um did did any of that experience working in 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 the motor trade rub off in in when you wrote the first book so when I wrote Open Your Eyes um I mean yes I've always been a feminist um you know that 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 goes without saying I think but Open Your Eyes was more a product of uh, a culture or a world that lives online that I just didn't know existed I mean yeah there were a couple of small elements of sexism that I experienced in my other job that I brought to open your eyes um but the sexism that I experienced in my job was actually far more subtle than anything than open your eyes um it was just being treated ever so slightly differently but nothing you could quite put your finger on and um different expectations different tolerances all that sort of thing so I suppose yeah you could say there was an element of it but no open your eyes came from reading a non-fiction book um and being inspired by that what was that book that was a book called men who hate women by laura bates um i listened to it during the first lockdown when i was out on my many walks as i think most of us <laughs> are uh and i just remember thinking how is it that nobody knows about this nasty little world that lives online i mean literally no nobody knew about it not then this was three years ago mm. uh, it's become far more um you know you th- there's a much bigger light shined on it now but back then i'd never even heard the word incel let alone knew what one was and it just scared me a little bit that you know there was this group of men online who literally hate women um and nobody knew about it so i decided the best way to talk about it and to raise the awareness is was to write a book about it I think that's quite an important role with fiction, though, isn't it? I mean, we've come across this before where people feel compelled to write something in a fictional way to highlight something that actually does happen in the world. Yeah, and I do think it's important um, that, you know, there are people who say, you know, well, I, I read fiction to escape from the world. I don't want to read about real life. But I would argue that almost every book has an element of real life to it anyway. The inspiration for it came from somewhere. You know, it, it didn't just materialize in somebody's head there was inspiration from it somewhere um and I was actually listening to Dame Denise Minor in a, a panel I think it was at Bloody Scotland last year um and she was talking about writing books that you're passionate about anybody can tell a story whether it's a good or a bad one is is a different thing but anybody can tell a story but 
the way a story really comes alive is a story that the author is passionate about which is why um although i've written two locked room murder mysteries now i've decided to go back to a slightly more open your eyes feel social commentary that kind of thing with my next book which is what i'm working on now i think that's very true i mean there are sort of two schools of thought aren't there with with um writing with especially sort of um commercial fiction is right to market write what exactly what you think the reader wants to write which read. Yes. read sorry <laughs> which which you know obviously works for some people um personally I don't think it would work for me because I would want to write something that I felt I could you know I'd want to write and keep writing and I'd feel passionate about myself I certainly find that with the one I'm writing now and when I wrote Open Your Eyes they are I had more material if you like to play with I um, understood the structure better I knew where the points were going to be whereas with the flight and op- uh, flight and the boat trip they're much shorter books and I feel like it's because I didn't have as much to say now the feedback on both books has been absolutely brilliant and I'm very proud of both of them but I do feel that this um, the open your eyes and the book I'm writing now is more where my passion lies and they're the kind of books that I want to write going forward Mm. I think you can feel it as a reader, can't you? You can feel the difference because otherwise, you may as well use Chat BGT, GGGBT, GPC. <laughs> if you're going to write purely for market, <laughs> yeah, and and I think that's something that people are, are are quite scared of. Actually, is that you know these AI bot things are are going to end up writing what readers want to read, but I'm not convinced it's it's going to work. I'm not convinced, even with you know, books that maybe the writers aren't necessarily as passionate about. I still don't think an AI bot could come up with something as good. Maybe one day, but I don't well, know. Well, I think it's all a question of soul, isn't it? I mean, the, the most effective works of art, regardless of what we're talking about, whether it's literature, music, or indeed the visual arts or whatever, dance, it comes from the soul. And, and that is something that AI cannot compete with yet and 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 i hope that's the case there's a word for it so i i studied this as part of my master oh here we go Uh, it's essence (laughs) the word is essence and it's really hard to describe but it's it's something only a human can put into a piece of art or a piece of writing or a piece of music whatever it is the essence you're talking about interesting i I shall use that (laughs) as will i goodness me how did this podcast get to be intellectual in any way phd that's what i'll do it on yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting. No, that is interesting. Before we talk about the locked room mysteries, and um, let's talk about that transition. Then you've, you've you've moved away from the motor trade. You've gone into being an editor, working with Bloodhound. What challenges did that give you? So I went from quite a strict daily routine. You know, I started work at seven thirty in the morning. I finished at six in the evening. I was lucky I got a lunch break um otherwise it was it was very regimented um and there were times where I would end up working 12 hour days you know there was just never enough time in the day um and I went from that to I can work wherever and whenever I want so I had to find a lot of self-discipline um and make my day not as structured but still quite structured so I even now I'm at my desk hopefully no later than nine o'clock if it's a normal day if I don't have any appointments or anything sometimes by eight o'clock um I usually have an hour for lunch 
um, I finish my day when I'm finished my work for the day. And that was something that I've actually been quite strict on because one of the things that used to infuriate me was that if I did run out of work in my old job, I had no choice but to hang around until six o'clock until it was home time. Yeah. I do now finish my work when I finish my work. I'll go downstairs and read a book or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think self-discipline is probably one of the biggest challenges. And sometimes having to say, no, I can't go out to lunch every day because I do have work to do. And I can't take a half day every day because I do have work to do. Um, and also being responsible for my own income as well. That's quite a big challenge. Never really being 100% certain of how much money you've got coming in each and every month. I mean, you can be reasonably certain, but you're, ne- you're never going to know for for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, some um, publishers have 30 day terms. So to wait for 30 days to get paid and, and all that sort of thing. So it, it's a little less certain, but I still wouldn't change it. I wouldn't go back. Well, I've been doing it for, how old's my oldest child? Nine, 18. 19. He's 19. So I've been doing it for 18 years. Wow. And the, exactly that, the sort of month on month, you never know for sure. And I'm still here and I still have a house. <laughs> but I, I take your point about the discipline part because, you know, in a way, I had a rhythm to my week uh, working at the BBC. And once I came out, it, it's taken me a long, long, I would argue, I probably haven't still nailed it. Um, <laughs> but getting that structure uh, it, it has felt like at times, even though it isn't, I feel like I'm I'm semi-retired because I don't have to be you, in. You act like you're well, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I sort of yeah, and wander around in my smoking jacket or something. Going around Waitrose. <laughs> pottering around looking at all the labels. Um, no, it, it does feel that way. And I, I, I have really struggled. But then again, you see the shape of my life there was is, it kind of imposed on me too, you know, get in mm. for the morning meeting, try and say something intelligent at 8.15 and be across all the news stories. So you're actually up at six reading everything, making sure you're not a mug when you go to the meeting. Then some smart ass has a go at you because you weren't across the latest <laughs> development on David Beckham's left toe. You know, that kind of stuff. It was, oh, I don't miss it. I think that probably comes through in this podcast. Yeah, yeah but I'm getting that impression. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I no. do think you do, you, you, we were talking about, you know, working from home. You have to, you have to be disciplined to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah, I'd probably not. Because I, I, I will get up at seven and then I'll do half an hour's work before I wake up everybody else. <laughs> what I'm interested to know, though, Heather, is, you know, with that background with within editing and proofreading, what does it does it uh, create a challenge for you in terms of a, a sense of well, I'm I'm switching the other way now. I'm an author. And does it strengthen you or does it? inhibit you in any way knowing you being the other side of the fence if you like it gives me a sense of freedom actually because I know that there's an editor there to have my back and I know there's a proofreader there to have my back so I don't feel the need to get it perfect I just I know that I can just get it down and of course I'll do two or three drafts myself but once the editor gets hold of it it is literally their job to help me to lick it into shape so it doesn't have to be perfect when it gets to them the only time it really needs to be as perfect as it can be is if you're looking for an agent or submitting to a new publisher after that you can relax a little bit and you can chill out a bit and you can just allow the words to come out as hopefully they will but you know never any a definite reassurance of that um but you know it gives me a freedom because i know the work an editor does so i know that i don't have to make things perfect 
And also, I guess you have sympathy for the role of the editor. So you're, you're not, you're not going to be, you know, some authors can be quite precious about their work. This is true. Because <laughs> they haven't um, got the same experience, but because you've worn both hats, you know, do you think it yeah. gives you that? I've, I've always found that I really love the editing process. So I know a lot of authors get their edits back and sort of sit with their head in their hands for a few hours before they think, right, okay, I can do this. Whereas mm-hmm. I get it back and go, oh my God, that's they're absolutely spot on with that. Why didn't I think of that? And yes, this is going to make my book much better. And, you know, I think only ever in three books, maybe four times I've gone, no, I disagree with that completely. I'm sticking with what I wanted. So um, yeah, I, I really enjoy getting the edits back and seeing what somebody else thought of it. Uh, and I've always known that writing a book is a collaborative effort. Um, it's not, you know, it's not just one person who makes a book come alive. So getting that next stage, getting that somebody else to see my work and, you know, get their view on it and figure out how to make it even better than it already is, is has always been a source of fascination for me. In terms of those um, locked room books, uh, the uh, the one I'm thinking of, uh, in fact, both of them really, but the flight, um, how much technical work needs to go into something like when you're setting your your drama at 30,000 feet? <laughs> um, and we've all been on aircraft, but there the, the presumably are moments where you're having to dig into things that you that as a passenger we might not be aware is on the on the aircraft that could be useful in a situation where things are going badly and people are murdering and whatever. Is there a Graham Bartlett for pilots? I think that's what you're asking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, well, there is. I was lucky enough, sort of, to... Um, so a friend of mine who's also an author, her husband happens to be a pilot. Mm. Uh, so when she found out I was writing a book set on an aeroplane she offered his services to me um, and I emailed him with a bunch of questions I basically sat down and went through everything that I could possibly think of that I might need to know the answer to um, and I emailed them to him and then we spent an hour an hour and a half on the phone going through them all answering them he gave me some information that I might not thought of to ask um and then I would when I was writing if anything else came up I would either just email him or email my friend his wife um because she used to be um cabin crew Mm. so I could email or ask either one of them if I had any other questions Um, but I do do a lot of research probably more than I need to with my books but it's one of the fun bits of it for me so yeah yeah and and the same with the the latest one which is of course set on a yacht um well you're down in hampshire aren't you at the moment yeah i am i'm on the south coast right so but you could just jump on a yacht and do a bit well, of research it, it's, it's howard's way territory isn't it we we, we came down and had a look at the boatyard they filmed howard's way and... oh right the howard's way pub didn't we, yeah, we did, yeah. where is that based i'm not even sure i know where that is yeah i'm trying to remember now um it's down on the handball um oh um yeah i know where it is I do know where it is. It's just up the road from me, actually. It's very sweet. Oh, you've mentioned it, yeah. Yeah, um, the Elephant Boatyard, it's called, uh, uh, the original yard. Yeah, so we, we went through a bit of a revival with Howard's Way. We we watched the, all the episodes. It was about three years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. And I bought him a signed photo of Jan and Ken. Ken, Ken Masters. Masters. <laughs> and Jan Howard. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, they're actually married. They're a real married couple now oh, in their okay. 70s. Yeah, which is extraordinary. But um, again, I mean, it's one of those theatres of life where if you're into your sailing, you're into your sailing and you know mm-hmm. every aspect of it, every knot, every, you know, and it's a different language. So I would personally, looking at that, feel some trepidation writing about it because 
the potential for people to go, oh, that would never happen. Daggerboard would never do that. We do have a friend with a yacht, though. Yes, Vin- we, well, we Yeah, we have two, actually, with yachts. But, you know, yeah. So I, I have a friend with a yacht, actually, or at least a friend with the use of a yacht. Uh, and he is a very, very experienced sailor. Um, and I have been out on sailboats a few times. Um, I am not one of those sailors you just described, though. Uh, I like to get on board a boat uh, in my shorts and T-shirt with a gin and tonic. Oh. I do not like the pulling of ropes, the putting up and down of sails. I'm not into that at all. As long as there's a fridge on board and my ice is cold, I'm good. Um, but no, <laughs> I, I have I have friends who are... Um, big sailors and um, were able to answer my questions but I did have some experience of sailing myself albeit only around the Solent I've never been across the Atlantic on a boat <laughs> but the Solent is such a busy waterway that in itself it's it's uh, it's the hardest bit of the whole lot I mean the Atlantic's easy compared to that you know in many respects <laughs> I'm not because... sure about that <laughs> <laughs> well okay the weather weather's a little bit less clement but I've been on a ferry well yeah that's <laughs> stepping towards that i mean no i used to work in southampton at bbc south so um and and half the newsroom were all yachties and i was one of the non-yachties um so they would they all decamped to cow's week and deliberately every show came from there and it was yeah. like uh, they didn't get much work done let's put it that yeah. way this place gets flooded around cow's week and the round the <laughs> island yacht race as well yeah yeah but in terms of those those mysteries um do you have any authors that have inspired you? Because it's it's um, it's a well-trodden path, isn't it? The, the locked room mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are so many masters of that genre. Does, was there anyone you, you lent on in terms of the reading you've done in the past? Yeah, and it's going to sound really boring, but Agatha Christie. I was going to say Agatha Christie. <laughs> um, I have to say, though, I didn't get into Agatha Christie up until a few years ago. I wasn't one of these people who read her at a very young age. So um, I read my the first one I ever read about five, six years ago, maybe was Murder on the Orient Express, which I just loved the concept of, thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, similarly with um, Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Um, and I've, I've read a fair few of them now, not, not half, but then there were lots of them. Um, and she's just the master at, leaving these little clues everywhere um and yeah I mean one of my somebody described the flight as Agatha Christie on a plane and I can't think of a higher compliment than that if I'm honest yeah that's that, good I like that that's a special comment I mean I, I, when I saw it, I thought snakes on a plane that's about the- oh, snakes on- <laughs> <laughs> that's a good film <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's a classic of its genre um yeah, yeah I'm sure Samuel L. Jackson uh, loved being in that um, the money was good, I'm sure. But yeah. uh, no, I mean, that's that's interesting because, I mean, we've we've done a special on Agatha Christie in the past, um, going to look at her letters to yeah. her agents. And yeah. what's so striking, because they're, they're held at Exeter University where we both went, and um, there's a special collection there. And she was a, for such a, a master of her art and the money that she made, she was a bag of neuroses throughout her life. Oh, really? It's extraordinary. Yeah, I didn't know that. But well, then she she had a bit of a history, didn't she, with her family? Her father was a bit. Her um, father left them destitute with money. <laughs> um, her first husband was a very naughty boy. Um, she had some some very difficult experiences. Yeah, yeah. I think it would make you very very neurotic and paranoid about people and money. Yeah, 
but it's yeah. it's interesting. You know, I always think of her you know, because the pictures you see now of Agatha Christie, of her and her dotage, uh, you know, in a bath chair outside her wonderful place in Devon, down by the by the water and all that sort of thing. And you're thinking, there's a woman who's content and has enjoyed a life and, and lived a life. But actually, deep down, she was always worried about the next paycheck, which is extraordinary. Yeah. That is extraordinary to think that when, because, you know, if she were still alive now, she'd still be earning a small fortune. Oh, from totally. She'd still have an income. Um, and, you know, I think what I particularly love about her books is that we can keep introducing them to the next generation. Um, my niece is 11 years old and she is as much of a reader as I am if not more and I've just started to introduce her to Agatha Christie because I thought well I waited until I was about 30 or 35 years old before I started reading I'm not waiting letting her wait that long so I've (laughs) given her a couple under the strict instructions that she's not allowed to read any unless I give them to her so that she doesn't read any that she shouldn't be reading (laughs) no absolutely in terms of your writing approach uh you say about you know you had to develop a a post ordinary job discipline mm-hmm. how disciplined is your is your writing uh, in terms of finding the time and, and separating that from editing so I try to set aside at least an hour every day for writing um if, it, if I've only got an hour then it'll be a sprint so it'll be phone off uh, smartwatch off no checking of social media just head down get on with it um, if I've got a few hours, actually, I probably do less work if I do a few hours because I'm much more easily distracted. I'm more likely to go in to do some research if I find, you know, a, a bit of a tangle that I need to get myself out of. Um, but yeah, I try and do a minimum of an hour a day. I try and do it first thing in the morning and then it's done because if I leave it to the end of the day, then that's very easy to sack off and go and have a coffee and read a book or watch television. Um, so I'm I'm probably less strict with my writing than I am with my actual work, for want of a better way to put it. But I do try and at least do something every day. That's good. That's a good discipline, isn't it? And in the morning as well, because I don't know about you, but I find I concentrate so much better in the morning. Like after this podcast, no chance. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm done. This is it for me now today. I've done something like fifteen or sixteen hundred words today, and then that's it. I'm I'm done. Um, I'm going to Brighton for a few days tomorrow, so I might do some on the train. But again, that's I'm so easily distracted on the train that I might just read instead. People mm. watching, yeah, reading and and just looking out the window. I know, I know, I'm exactly the same. Uh, you could see from our gasps that we're so jealous. Yeah, we, yeah. one of our horses is also in Brighton at the moment. She's visiting. She lives in Spain, but she's in oh. Brighton. Yeah, we just can't this week make make it make a trip. But we would go to Brighton. I mean, I used to be the Brighton reporter for the BBC, right. and so it's my it's in my DNA and. Um, <laughs> It's just the best. Oh, I love it. I mean, you know, I, I I never fail to come away from Brighton not feeling completely energized and full of new ideas, which lasts about I've, ten seconds. But <laughs> I'm it on the M6 there, and then it goes. We it ages ago, um, and we're just going to be so lucky with the weather now. Oh yeah, mm, it's yeah, beautiful. So when you know you, you can get an hour in in the morning, in terms of the plotting or pantsing which way are you are you do you have do you have your 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 concept and then you you work out the beats and then work to that or is it is it slightly more organic i'm a hybrid i have discovered um 
I have I have I have one of those books that every author has in my drawer, which I've written, which will probably never see the light of day. And that was pantsed entirely, um, <laughs> which is probably why it will never see the light of day. Um, I started writing Open Your Eyes um, by pantsing it. And then I realized that actually I needed I knew how it was going to end and I kind of needed to work out how to join the dots. So that was a little more structured. And then with the flight and with um, Open Your Eyes, because they're locked rooms because there is limited time um to get the story done I found I had no choice but to at least you know point out the beats that I needed to hit um and the one I'm doing at the moment I'm just looking at my whiteboard down there the one I'm doing at the <laughs> moment um is is broken up into a three-act structure with the beats pointed out and then I'll fill in how to get there on the way um and then if I get stuck I'll spend some time plotting out the next few chapters um although when I say plotting out I do mean like I want this to happen in this chapter and this to happen in this chapter it's like a sentence and then Mm. I'll flesh it out from there but if the if the um if the characters decide they're doing something different we go with whatever the characters are doing I've tried in the past to force them to do what I want and it doesn't work and they rebel anyway so I just let them do whatever they want now yeah because we've because some of our authors say that as well the characters are in their head saying I don't I would never behave like that Stop it. Absolutely. And you end up writing yourself into a corner if you force them to do something they don't want to do as well, um, which sounds very odd to anyone who's never written a book before. But you do. You write yourself into a corner and then you have to go back and unpick it all and you end up doing what they wanted to do anyway. So And they stood there going, no, 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 told you. you. <laughs> Should have done it my way the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's living. Um, in terms of character development, um, do they do those characters just I'm I I'm just going to reflect on on when I've written um and created characters I'll hit a point in a story where I know I need somebody to fulfill a function so one of the, the secondary characters and suddenly they'll pop into my head with the name and their background and everything like that um but what's your your process do you do you, do you work them up do you gather images or, or you know wear different clothes what <laughs> <laughs> so usually from the beginning so I I full start books a lot it will take me forever to write the first five or six thousand words um but usually by the time I've got the first five or six thousand words that I'm happy with I've also got the characters and then I'll try and flesh them out a bit I've got character sheets on the board in front of me and they don't always stay that way often I'll go oh I decided he was that but I've written him as that so he becomes whatever I've written him because if I've written him that way then that's how he should be um, you know, because that's how it works best for the story. So I change the character sheet. Um, but if I need someone to fulfill a role and I don't already have a character for that, then I'll go, oh, let's have Jane. Jane can do this. And then I'll create a character around Jane or whatever name I come up with and decide that's them. Um, but quite often those characters will end up either being nameless in the end because they're just fulfilling one function. Um or they'll disappear entirely because I didn't need them in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I know that feeling. Um, Shame you can't do that in real life. Well, let's not get started on that, shall we? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 I was I was going to 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 think about the the wider writing community, which of which we're all members now, and but quite, I suppose we could describe ourselves as recent, reasonably recent yeah. members. Absolutely. What's what's your feeling about? because you go to festivals as we do we about the health of the wider community at the moment because it feels as if 
Crime Fest particularly felt like a transitional point where certain things that had never been addressed came to light. We talked about this at length a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago after we'd gone to Crime Fest. We didn't go to the dinner, so we don't know what was said, all of that stuff. But um, we felt last week with the announcement that Vaseem Khan was taking over as CWA chair, hallelujah, things are going to change. Is that how you feel about things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was at Crime Fest, but I wasn't at the dinner. So same as you guys, I I, I don't know what was actually said. Um, But yeah, with VAS becoming the CWA chair, it definitely feels like there's a turning point coming. Um, The the response to what happened at Crime Fest felt like the community properly coming together and standing up and saying, we're not taking up with this anymore. Um, This is our community and that's not how we want people in our community to behave. Um, And I was very proud of everyone who took a stand on it, to be honest. But yeah, I'm I'm really proud that Vass is chair and I'm really chuffed for him. I was so pleased when I saw the announcement. Oh, he's yeah. definitely I, the right guy for the job, isn't well, he? Well, he's, he's just the right person. He's lovely. Well, he's I mean, lovely. And he uh, always admires my boots, so I really like him. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's very lovely. And he's always he he um he's always ready with a helpful word or a piece of advice. Um, you know, nothing is ever too much for him. Um, yeah, he's helped me out quite a few times, whether he realizes it or not, I'm not sure. But yeah, he, he's a super helpful guy. I think he wears that lightly. I think you're absolutely right. I remember explaining to him, I was at the, the CWA dinner last year and um, I was staying in Slough and I was explaining how grim the, he said, you're not staying. And I had to rush off to get to get the train to go to yeah. the travel lodge in, uh, in Slough. And he said, oh, you should have, should have dropped me a line. I've got a spare room. You can oh, you up. And things like sweet. that. He's just thinking... That's so over and above. I don't know. It's probably one of those sort of throwaway lines, but actually, genuinely, I came away thinking he meant it, which yeah, is yeah. quite quite unusual. I have um, to say, though, um, you know, I've been involved in the crime writing community for about six years as mm. a writer, first of all, and then, you know, working with publisher and and then as a writer. And I have to say, I feel like I find my tribe, you know, the, the people as a general rule are amongst the kindest, friendliest people you'll ever meet. Um, I rocked up to my first Harrogate having never met anybody in real life and came away with some lifelong friends. So um, I have to say, I, I I do love our little community and I cannot wait for Harrogate in a few weeks' time. <laughs> it's mm. not long now, no. Absolutely. Um, but the only, the only thing, I mean, we were discussing this with one of our authors today, you know, wouldn't it be nice if Harrogate got even broader in terms of the people that they feature? Because, you know, it does feel a little bit like the same same names. I and mean, they are great names. Oh Great yeah, news. yeah. I think uh, I think they've um done they've they've changed it a little bit with the two author dinners this year. So you have some I was gonna say lesser known <laughs> authors, that doesn't sound quite right, but um you know, some some not normal names for Harrogate um doing the author dinner, which I think is fab. But yeah, I do think sort of more authors at my level who maybe need a bit more of a chance, a bit more of a voice uh, to get their books out there would be nice. Um, but there are lots of other, um, you know, there are lots of other festivals that do that too. So um, I guess it's just a case of each uh, festival having its unique point of who who they represent and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe, look, it's something that we could all do actually take control of i mean you know there's a big beer tent there we could just say once an hour <laughs> well, make, make one, a little panel with some of the we, we take a boom box and we, we 
and we we get up on a soapbox or something like John Major did in the '97 election and start talking about our books and um, interrupt everybody's conversations. It'd be quite good fun. Like um, I'm, I'm just imagining. I'm just imagining Sharon Canavar's face if we tried to do that. I'm, I'm not sure. I dare say, yeah, she, yeah. <laughs> speaker's corner. No, you're right. I mean, it wouldn't go down too well, but hey, it'd be fun trying. Oh, it'd be fun, wouldn't it? Just Everyone has 60 seconds to plug their book onto, on, a, on a bench in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> that would be lovely. Well, look, uh, we've reached that, uh, that point in the uh, conversation where things take a darker turn. Uh, oh. as right. we... What are you going to do? <laughs> Well, I'm going to choke on water, as you probably heard a moment ago. I took a sip and breathed at the same time. Never a wise idea. Anyway, I'm recovering now. Um, but it is it is time for the ultimate challenge in British podcasting, which, of course, is Rebecca's random question. OK, my questions tend to come from things that have happened to us. And we've just got into a TV programme called Britain's Most Expensive Houses. So it's a Channel 4 thing. And they, it's about the estate agents who are selling these four million pound houses in the UK. Wow. Forty million, in some cases, forty yeah. million. And it's just, it's it's fascinating and depressing at the same time. <laughs> now, but I was thinking, would I want to live in a forty million house? And I thought, no, actually, I would like to live in either a tree or a gypsy caravan, a traditional gypsy caravan. So my question to you is: You can't live in a house, right? What? object would you like to live in i would probably want to live in something like a windmill or a water mill or Ooh. something like that maybe a water mill actually because that would mean it was by the water and i do like to be beside the water we, we live i can be at portsmouth harbour in about five minutes if i leave my house now um so i walk down by the harbour quite often uh, i go to the sea for answers actually whether it's writing answers or life answers but mm. i spend a lot of time there so yeah anywhere near water so yeah i think a watermill would be perfect but do you realize fitting out your kitchen would be quite tricky <laughs> putting out my kitchen why because it sounds well not necessarily but like no, not for a watermill a windmill would be but not for a watermill a watermill the, oh. the wheels on the side no you're right sorry my mistake it's just <laughs> i, I... <laughs> I once thought there was another Channel 4 programme which was how, um, unusual houses or something. And uh, the the um, lighthouses had circular kitchen units. Mm. Yeah, well, a lighthouse would be another good one, actually. There's, I think there's a, um, a women's fiction series, a rom-com series, where the main character lives in a lighthouse. And it sounds amazing. Um, I would love that. Well, the, the, famously in the 80s, it, there was The Life and Loves of the She-Devil by Faye Weldon. And right. it was televised, and it had um, Dennis Waterman mm. as the the bag, you know, the uh, the man, uh, and uh, it was Rula Lenska. Actually, they got married in real life um, as the mistress, and then it was Julie. What's her name? I can't what? remember. Now. No, 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 no. Uh, anyway, it 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 was um, a, a classic of sort of revenge feminist fiction of that period, and they filmed it. Oh, it? Yeah, it was a book first, and then it was a series. And they filmed it at the place called Bell Toot Lighthouse, which won't be very far from where you are at Brighton because okay. it's um, it's overlooking. It's on the Seven Sisters Country Park up, oh, uh, yeah. above above Eastbourne. Mm-hmm. And the reason I you know go on about this is because one of the stories I did back in that period was they um, that lighthouse was about to fall off the cliff because you know of coastal erosion, yeah. and so some millionaire bloke bought it and he put it on rails, and it, it, every so often they they move it backwards from the cliff edge. 
oh, on rails. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, it's it's quite a quite a. It, so it has the most fabulous reading room in the uh, in the lantern of the lighthouse. Imagine that sounds amazing. Mind you, you'd get distracted by the view, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, I'd live in a, I possibly would choose a railway carriage to live in if I could. I've seen those. They're good, aren't they? Railway carriages. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Something I think like so. I mean, you an express. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I was, you, talk, you talked about Gypsy Caravan. I, I, I didn't know this, but I, I saw it on a documentary the other day that um, Andy Summers of the police mm-hmm. was born in a Gypsy Caravan. Well, one of those traditional ones oh, with yeah, the green yeah. roof. I love those. Mm-hmm. With all the painting. Yep. Because there wasn't enough room on his father's RAF base for family quarters, so his mother gave birth in a in a gypsy caravan. Well, once on Houses Under the Hammer, they were selling <laughs> a public toilet, and they were going to convert that into a house. Now, that would be a good one, wouldn't it? Well, I'm not convinced on that one, actually, if I'm honest. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a good one in Brighton um, at Seven Dials, and uh, it was a toilet, and then someone turned it into a florist's. Okay. Um, it's no longer. It's now a hairdresser's, but um, you know, <laughs> I, I'm God. I'm a fountain of absolutely useless knowledge. Expensive Britain's what most expensive houses? houses yeah, it's compelling. But you would come away that. and think there are people like this in the world. <laughs> there are. There are. Maybe that'll be in the next locked room mystery. Well, locked in a forty million house. Yeah, yeah. Locked yeah. in a forty million pound house. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. I mean, you know. It'd be such a claustrophobic experience, won't it, with 12 bedrooms? And a swimming pool and a home <laughs> cinema and a lift. Yeah, but you'd never know if you were the only person in the house. I know. It'd be like, um, 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 murder. What's that? Stephen King. Murder. I have no idea. Oh, uh, you know, he's in a hotel and it snows. Oh, The Shining. Yeah, The Shining. shining. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it would kind of be like that. Except hopefully you wouldn't have a crazy man trying to kill everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope not. Let's hope not. And let's hope that the old ship hotel in Harrogate, where no doubt we'll all meet the old in a few swan. weeks, if I overcome my phobia of going ever again, um, we we shall uh, we'll see there's probably no dead bodies there. But uh, Well, dead bodies at a crime festival. <laughs> Hungover bodies at a crime festival. Yeah. <laughs> drunken bodies. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mark Billingham. We're, yeah. we're talking about you, mate. Uh, <laughs> anyway, look, Heather, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. And all the best with the latest yeah, book, of course, luck. The Boat oh. Trip, which is out a week from the time we put this podcast out. So uh, Thank we're you. really Thank excited you about so that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to answer your questions and chat with you this evening. <laughs> Can we- you believe that it was bright sunshine when we did that interview and now we're sat here and it's pouring of rain it is yeah absolutely hammering it down it's been a very hot week um well everyone in the uk knows that it's just been one of those sizzling weeks where it gets muggy and close and occasionally you get a, a little burst of rain but it's been uh, much needed anyway it's chucking it down now um so we're recording this while i would normally be watching the test match but there's no need to do that at the moment oh is it is rain to stop play it's raining in birmingham oh, just down i wondered the road. why we were doing the podcast now yeah <laughs> cynical i know get some of the other things i need to do done well um that was uh, a great interview thank you so much heather who's our guest next week so um our guest next week is actually was two guests and they're not mm. crime writers but they have just written a book and so our guests next week are uh, Jamie Vetch, uh, I think that's how you say it, and Jonathan Bland, who have just written a book called Vitalising Purpose. It's not a crime novel. It's a non-fiction book, and it's about uh, social enterprise in the public sector. And it is fascinating. So I edited this book 
uh, although I was tasked with proofreading, I actually did more of an edit than a proofread. Um, and it was like a freelance job. And I went to the book launch, their book launch last week in a very posh law firm, I think it was, in uh, the bank area of London where everybody it's looks in, clean in, and shiny. And... In the square mile. Yes, <laughs> as it's known. Oh, it was lovely. And I and I talked to all sorts of fascinating posh people. I met posh nibbles. It was great. It's like the country mouse. <laughs> I felt like the country mouse and I actually said to somebody, I said, I'm normally opposite a field of cows and here I am in the bank di- district of London today. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's great. Um, so we'll look forward to speaking to Jamie and to Jonathan next week. Um, you also went to the... Royal Academy Summer Exhibition. I did. I try and go to this every year, but I haven't been able to uh, since before lockdown. So when this launch party came up and the uh, two authors invited me along, I thought, yes, I I can go. And then I thought, I can combine it with some art and got myself a ticket to the summer show, which is uh, one of my favourite exhibitions because it's open to anyone. So anyone can submit a piece of artwork for the summer show. They do make a selection, obviously, because there's finite space. But it's like an explosion of art because they cover the walls and the, there are sculptures as well and sort of videos and sound pieces. But it is, it's like a cave of art. I love it and I recommend highly recommend it. It's about £25 for ticket, but it's worth it, every mm. penny. Mm-hmm. No, that's fabulous. I wish I had been in a position to come down and, and join you. Um, so this week we ought to mention that uh, after its wonderful runaway success as a launch... Jenny Ensel's Bad Neighbour. The Bad Neighbour is going to be going up to its normal price a little later after this podcast. So you are the, the hours are counting yeah, down. Yeah, till midnight tonight as this podcast goes out, you've got to buy it at 99p. So if you haven't got it yet, worth doing it now before we put it up to regular price. But that's not the only book that's 99p at the moment because it is National Crime Reading Month run by the CWA and we've marked it with three books a week Yeah, we at have. 99p and they are this week. So this week, it's Her Deadly Friend by Ray Sargent, which is the first in a series, police procedural series. So Ray Sargent also writes as Rachel Sargent, a best-selling psychological thriller author. It's a fantastic book. It's a great book. It's it's sort of psychological thriller mixed in with police procedural. So I would say if you like um, books like The Confession by Maureen Mayant and um, that sort of getting into the minds of the people, then it's a book for you. We also have Fatal Trade by Brian Price, 99p at the moment. Excellent. That's that's a terrific book. They're all terrific. Yes. And the final one is Dirty Little Secret by, by Jonathan Peace. Yeah. So uh, you, you could call that historical crime fiction because it's set in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. And it's worth dipping into if you haven't yet. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, yeah, again, it's another busy week. Uh, you have your eldest boy is now back from university, so he'll be in residence. Um, but uh, the, the, the main sort of thrust of this week, I've got the, uh, the, re- the script that I'm going to be narrating on Greek philosophy. I started it today. Uh, it's going to be, boy, oh, boy, it's, it's, it's perfect for Scrabble lovers um, when you're doing all the names of the pre-Socratic philosophers. I can't even say that. Philosophers. Um, it's uh, it's quite a mouthful. Are you uh, going to be skipping up to me with excitement and saying, "Ooh, ooh I've just learned this about Socrates"? Possibly, possibly. <laughs> it's 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 the most. I mean, I've done nonfiction before, but this is by far the most academic book, and it's taking me into a realm of sounding very posh, in a way. Um, so that I'm doing that, but uh, I've also got loads of medical things this week, haven't I? I've got dental, I've got you know medical things, and all sorts of 
stuff. So I'm up and down the road. Oh, uh, have you? I know about the dentist. Well, I've got doctors as well. Oh. A couple of those. So um, it's, all, it's, all, it's all happening. It's all happening. But you're going to be eating lots of pickles this week. Apparently. Yeah, so we've just started <laughs> eating lots of pickles because now the reason is last week I discovered the joy of beetroot because uh, mm. you found a recipe yep. for sort of slow cooking beetroot mm-hmm. and then frying it in butter with balsamic vinegar. Yep. It is to die for. So then I bought a jar of pickled beetroot yesterday. And you fell in love with that. And you bought a jar of pickled herrings. So we've been I having did. pickles every day. <laughs> God, God help us. Well, look, um, we're going to wrap up in a minute, um, but I just wanted to bring you one happy story to add to our news section. Go on, then. And this is from the Yorkshire Post. Oh, I love the Yorkshire Post, yes. Harrogate Tea Room's Facebook post goes viral as two women with same name bond over books written by Yorkshire crime author Malcolm Hollingdrake. No! (laughs) Two women with the same name have become best friends after a chance encounter at a Harrogate Tea Room's book signing with their newfound friendship going viral on social media. The friendship blossomed during a book signing with popular crime writer Malcolm Hollingdrake, whose books are set in Harrogate, if they're not set in Liverpool as well. The cafe was very busy with people, and one woman struggled to find a seat, so she asked to share a table with another woman. And when introducing themselves, they discovered they both had the same name and bonded over their love of Malcolm's crime books. Isn't that lovely? That is lovely. It's funny because at the launch party I went to, there were two Chris Wrights. <laughs> and so I was chatting to Chris White 1 and Chris White 2 and they were chatting about what they both do and how... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. The so two, they bonded as well. Well, the two women, both named Anne, have now started meeting up for weekly catch-ups at the Harrogate Tea Rooms. That's very cute. That is cute. Owner of Harrogate Tea Rooms, Carrie and Tony Wilkinson, were both so taken with the newfound friendship, they posted the story of their encounter on Facebook. Carrie told the Yorkshire Post... We were so touched by this chance encounter that led to a lovely friendship, so much so that we wrote a post about it. Both Anne's are adorable and happened to be in the right place at the right time. I think the fact they both were called Anne was the icing of the cake. It's just her the first perfect name, ingredients. Then. Yeah. Hey. Malcolm was born in Bradford and spent three years studying at Ripon College. He's since written many successful short stories as well as a set of crime novels called the Harrogate Crime Series and two books within the Merseyside Crime Series. Yay, four we get a books. Yeah, well, we Thank you. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he met both Anne's that day at his book signing and formed a bond with them. Oh, and Malcolm cute. said to the Yorkshire Post, the story is indeed a touching one, and it was my pleasure to meet the two Anne's, one of whom attended the same college as me, so we have much in common. He, he should put them in a book, I think. Yeah. The two hours. Maybe, maybe. maybe. maybe we'll get, both get bumped off as a result. Um, I think that's the power of the written word. Books set in real locations have an ability to bring people together on common ground, and there is nowhere better than Harrogate and the tea rooms for that. I have to say, <laughs> I was humbled they both enjoy the Harrogate crime series. Isn't that sweet? That's very sweet. That's really sweet. I didn't know about that at all. Well, that congratulations great. to Malcolm. That, brilliant. And uh, I know you're working on book three as the Merseyside crime series, which we're looking forward to very much uh, in the in the future. Um, but uh, I think that wraps up for this week. It does. So thank you very much for listening to the Hopcast Book Show. We do appreciate it. Uh, you can get show notes. The transcript of our interview with Heather is available at our website, www.hobeck.net. Take a look also at archpub.net, which is the home of our publishing services company. Uh, but for myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We wish you a wonderful and... Creative Week. Bye bye.
You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.